Well, you guys are officially the remnant of Corvallis. Welcome. Glad you guys are with us on spring break. I wish it was sunnier outside, but it's Oregon, so what can we expect? Uh, as Bonnie said, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 today. I own and drive a 1999 Nissan Sentra. I don't think anybody would ever say that's a beautiful car, but for the most part, it does its job. But the thing is, my car is getting older and older each year. I mean, it's a 20-year-old car, and I think of even the branch, I'm like, my car is older than probably a third of our congregation. (laughs) And as your car gets older, you start to realize the thing that it once was isn't quite what what it is now. Uh, Because as my car got older and gets older, more and more issues start to arise. And and one of those issues is that my gas light never actually comes on. (laughs) Not only that, but my gauge for my gas tank isn't accurate either. So I've had a time or two where I'm at a quarter tank, or so I think, to then find out that my car just decides to die on me because I run out of gas. I actually, no joke, have a gas can in the back of my car now for these moments, preparation. But what I've, what I've learned as I've sat on the side of the road waiting for somebody to come pick me up or gas to be brought to my car, is that a car without gas is pointless. Like, yes, it's still a car, but at the end of the day, I can't use it for its purpose. A car's purpose is to get me from point A to point B. Ideally, you know, I've got roll-down windows and AC, but ultimately a car still works without those things. Yet if I don't have gas, I'm not, it's not able to fulfill its primary purpose. That car actually lacks purpose, and it lacks value. And today, in a sense, Paul discusses the fuel of the Christian life. And the fuel of that Christian life is love. He makes it clear that if we want to go anywhere in our life, if we want to be purposeful with the life God has given us, love must be the primary component. And Paul clearly lays this out in 1 Corinthians 13 in in three pretty distinct sections. We've got section one, which is one through three, and it's looking at the indispensability of love. 4 through 7 looks at the description of love, and then lastly, in 8 through 13, he ends with the permanence of love. So let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3 and looking at this indispensability of love. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul makes it pretty clear right off the bat that love is indispensable. Without love, I am nothing. He repeats that phrase over and over and over throughout these three verses. He starts out by talking about tongues, and he says, whether it's tongues of man or of angels, this lofty language. Without love, it's a noisy gong or a cymbal. A noisy gong, it denotes this endless reverberating noise with no melody. I think to kind of modernize it, you can think of Dumb and Dumber, 
in the car, and you've got Harry saying, hey, you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? And then he goes off on his nice little, I'm not even going to do it for you guys. Just think of that when you think of a gong. Or this, this symbol imagery is one of pagan worship. And so really he's saying, without love, you just sound like an empty, hollow noise of pagan worship. And then he goes on to say, hey, if you can prophesy, or if you can understand all mysteries, or all knowledge, or have all faith that you can actually remove mountains, which is this imagery of being able to remove very difficult aspects of one's life. He's like, if you give away all you have, if you are the most generous person in the world, and if you're willing to even give up your own life, you'd have not love. You're nothing. And he magnifies it again by this statement of all repeated throughout these verses. He's saying, even if you have the maximum amount of each gift, if no one has more knowledge than you or more faith than you or understands more mysteries than you, but if you don't have love, what's the point? It's like, you're still nothing. You're a spiritual cipher. Our spiritual significance just fades away. D.A. Carson summarizes this section well, and he says, You who think that because you speak in tongues you are spiritual, you who prove your large endowment from the Holy Spirit by exercising the gift of prophecy, you must understand that you have overlooked what is most important. By themselves, spiritual gifts attest to nothing spiritual about you. And if you prefer to attest your rich privilege in the Holy Spirit by your works of philanthropy, you must learn that philanthropy, apart from Christian love, says nothing about your experience with God. You remain spiritually bankrupt, a spiritual nothing, if love does not characterize your exercise of whatever grace, gift God has assigned you. See, I think if Paul were speaking to the church today, I think he'd kind of say stuff like, you know what, it doesn't, doesn't equal spirituality for how much theological knowledge you have and can recite to your neighbor or to your friend. Your spirituality isn't defined by your worship style and whether you go to a liturgical church or whether you go to a church that just kind of has a free form of worship. Your spirituality isn't defined by how many small groups you're a part of or how many ministries you're a part of. Your spirituality doesn't come down to how much money you give away or how many boards of charities you're on. He's ultimately saying, hey, these things are great, but if they lack love, they lack significance. He's saying, I'm nothing without love. You're nothing without love. When I was in the third grade, I had a, a teacher that gave us a test. And the test was, can you follow instructions? And so she said very clearly before the test started, make sure you read all the instructions before you take the test. And like any third grader, I was like, yep, got it. Started the first one, I was like, okay, here we go. Write my name in the corner. And as the test goes on, I'm following instruction by instruction. And it started getting pretty weird, because it was like, hey, fold your paper in half. Stand up and turn in a circle. Count how many people were wearing flip-flops versus shoes. 
make your note into a paper airplane. I was like, this is a really weird test. And then I got down to the last instruction, and it said, if you have read all these instructions, you don't need to take the test. Just walk it up to the teacher, and you're done. You see, I think so often in life, we're like the third grade Davy. They were like, I'm going to do all these things. Yet if we just follow the instruction that Paul lays out, which is love, then it actually brings significance to one's life. Because the reality is with that test, I did all these things I didn't need to do and brought no significance. They had no value apart from following the instruction. You see, it's pointless unless we follow the instruction in life. Which again, Paul lays out in this section, that instruction is love. That love is what leads, love is what guides us. Without love, we live purposeless lives. In this section, Paul makes it clear that love is indispensable. But the question is, what does he mean by love? I mean, love is a word that we flippantly throw around. I love my mom. I love pizza. I love Anna. I love Ivy. I don't love my car. Things like that. We just throw it out there so casually. I met somebody for the first time. I love you. You're the best. He's got to mean more than that, right? And so Paul uses four verses, this middle section, to describe what love is. And he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or proud. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think the best way to describe what Paul's doing in this section um, is, is through an illustration. We all know there's words that we use from time to time, uh, we probably use almost daily, that we, we know what they mean, but they're kind of hard to define. And I think, I think one of those words is, is beautiful. It's hard to define beautiful, so instead what we do is we, we describe it. We say it's like this. So I looked up, okay, what is the definition of beautiful? The definition of beautiful is pleasing the senses or mind aesthetically. Just imagine if I walked up to our buds class right now, pulled it together, and said, hey, this is what beautiful means. They'd have no idea what that means. So instead, what do we do? We describe it. We make statements like, beautiful is the Oregon coast in August at sunset, when you've got that few clouds in the sky, and you've got the red and the purple and the pink, and it reflects off the shoreline. Beautiful is the clear sky where you've got millions of stars. And if you're lucky, you get that shooting star that crosses the sky. Beautiful is Crater Lake, or the Painted Hills, or Silver Falls. Or beautiful is the bride on her wedding day. Or the groom's face as he watches his bride walk down the aisle for the first time. Beautiful is the Sistine Chapel. See, that evokes an image that helps us understand that's what beautiful is. That's what beautiful means. And Paul's doing the same thing in these verses. He's saying, you want to know what love is? You want to know what love looks like? Here it is. 
You see, his descriptions aren't just theoretical or abstract, but he's like, I'm going to make this practical for you. He's saying this is love personified. And he actually uses, the, the way he uses his grammar and his syntax and his, and his verbs is to emphasize this dynamic and active and effective nature of love. He's saying love is not something that's passive. But rather, love is something that is active. It acts. And so let's walk through what, what is love. He says love is patient. And again, this patience is not just simply willing to wait a long time. It's not, wow, that person's driving 15 miles an hour on a 30-mile-an-hour road. Look, I'm patient. No, it's much more than that. It's actually the endurance of injuries without retaliation. Or the way the King James Version says it, it says, it suffereth long. Patience actually equals long suffering. Love is kind. This is a pure and unselfish concern for the well-being of others. It's the idea that when you receive hurt, you're actually quick to respond with gentleness, with a kind response for their benefit, even in the midst of a benefit that might be lacking to you. Kindness trumps retaliation. So love is not envious or boastful. Love isn't this rivalry or this competition to say, hey, I can outdo you. I can outgive. I can outserve. I can outlove. That's not the mindset of love. It's not puffed up. He goes on to say, love is not arrogant or rude. The word rude actually means behave shamefully or disgracefully. Because love has nothing to do with that. Rather, Christian love actually cares enough for the rest of the community that it pushes away all pride in one's life. Love is humble. It says love does not insist on its own way, which I think is probably one of the hardest things for us to actually grasp within our culture. I mean, I even think we, we live in a town with a university, and if you're at the university, you're pretty much told, hey, these four years are about you. It's about your way, about you figuring out your life. Yet here, Paul says love is not self-seeking. Love is not about finding oneself being the highest good in one's life. It's not caught up in self-gain or self-justification. On top of that, genuine love is never manipulative. It never says, hey, I'll, I'll love you if you do X, Y, and Z. Or, because I love you, you should do X, Y, and Z. Love doesn't insist its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love is not quick to lose one's temper, nor is it one to let its emotions just build and build and build until eventually it explodes. Love is actually one that would go and talk to people to engage in that conversation before resentment sets in. Nor love does not rejoice in wrongdoing. The reality is love is never glad when a person fails. And that means even when we think that that person deserves it, it's still not glad when sin has a hold 
on somebody's life. Love doesn't gossip about the misdeeds of others. But rather, love rejoices in all truth. So where the reports of something right or beautiful or lovely, love rejoices in those things. Love is in the front lines of finding joy in other people's lives. Love joins with others in rejoicing over truth. Even if it doesn't benefit you. Even if maybe by that person's truth, it actually hurts you. Love still rejoices with the truth every single time. See, love does not play a comparison game. And then he ends with love bears all things. Pretty much love puts up with everything. There's nothing love cannot face. Love believes all things. And this doesn't mean that it's naive. But it does mean that love is is willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Love willingly overlooks past sins and failures, believing that our God and Father in heaven is at work in that person's life, restoring them and glorifying them. The reality is love never ceases to trust God because we believe that he's got justice in his hands. Love hopes all things. This isn't a crossing our fingers and hoping for the best. Rather, Christian hope rests in the certainties of God. To hope all things in regards to God's people means to confidently expect long-term growth within the brothers and sisters of Christ, within the brothers and sisters in our community. And love endures all things. One commentator says it this way. Love has a tenacity in the present, buoyed by its absolute confidence in the future, that enable one to live in every kind of circumstance and continually pour oneself out on behalf of others. See, this is, this is what love looks like. It's a profound, rich description. And yet it's a challenging description. Because I think if we look at our life, we have to take inventory and say, does that reflect me? Does love equal Davy? I have to ask that question. I have to wrestle with that. And it's important to wrestle with that. Because this description of love that he's calling us to grasp for and to strive for is super important because in the end, love is permanent. He makes that clear in this last section that love exists beyond all things. And so we need to start to grasp this now, knowing that it's the only way of the future. Verses 8 through 13 focus on the permanence of love. For he says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. What Paul's making clear in this section is that love lives on into the eschaton. Like it lives on into the future. Love never ends, that statement. Love never ends. Or in other versions, it says love never fails. And the reality is kind of a combination of both those. It's never going to fail, nor is it ever going to end. Yet he makes it clear that these other things are are going to pass away. And it's important to note, he's not saying that, okay, all knowledge as we know it is going to pass away. But rather this charismatic gift of knowledge, this, this robust aspect of knowledge. Nor is he saying that the content of, of prophecy is going to pass away, but the one that prophesies will no longer be needed. Paul says these gifts will pass away when the perfect comes. So what is the perfect? The perfect is Christ. The perfect is Christ when he comes back in all his glory to restore this world and to make all things right. The reality is to make things perfect as it was when he created in the beginning. But this leads to the question, why are these gifts not important? Why will these gifts pass? Why will they fade away? And he says, because when Christ comes, what are we going to need them for? Because when the wonderful knowledge of God becomes ours, the purpose of such gifts as prophecy and tongues and knowledge will disappear. Like, what need do we have for them? We're in the presence of God. Thistleton, who's a commentator on, on 1 Corinthians, he says this, Will the redeemed in heaven need sermons from prophets? Will the resurrection modes of being express praise in tongues? No. But love will remain the interpersonal currency of heaven. You see, he's saying, when, when God comes, what need do we have for these things when we can engage with God face to face? Like, why would I care about these things when I have God before me? Think of it like this. 10 to 15 years ago, whenever we wanted to go anywhere that we'd never been before, what would we do? We'd get on our computer, maybe even dial up, yikes, okay? And we'd go to MapQuest. we put in our address, we put in their address. And then you'd print it out, you'd get in your car, and you'd like drive while you're like trying to look and trying to read the small font. And if you want to make it more difficult, it's at night and you got your light on as well. We'd use MapQuest to try to get anywhere. Yet as time went on and the iPhone was developed, guess what? We had GPS on our phone. And everybody's got a phone in their pocket. And so nowadays, we just pull out our phone. We can just talk and say the address, and it sends us where we need to go. Not only that, we can choose if it's a man speaking to us, a woman speaking to us, and if we want it to be a British or Australian accent. You see, we have no need for MapQuest 
because we have a better thing before us, our phone, with the GPS on it. And that's ultimately what Paul's saying. is like, you have no need for that. Because not only do you have the better, you have the perfect before you. And he makes that even clearer as he gives these two analogies. The first being that of a child. And he says, hey, when you were a child, like you thought like a child, you acted like a child, but then you grew up. You know, hopefully as a 30-year-old, we're not still acting like a child. He's saying there comes a point where we're no longer holding on to our toys and saying, this is mine, you can't touch it. Or look, I'm better than you because I've got this new toy and you've got an old toy. He's saying, we've grown up, we are adults before God. And then he gives the description of a mirror, which is significant for the Corinthians because they made amazing bronze mirrors. And he's saying, you're seeing a dim reflection now compared to the day when you will see face to face. He's saying our present vision of God is as nothing would compare to the real thing that is yet to be. As Paul says, it's the difference between seeing a reflected image in a mirror and seeing someone face to face. We have been blessed with the word of God and we get to see God through it. But I guarantee all our questions will be answered when we stand before God face to face. And that face-to-face imagery is such a powerful message for us to grasp. Because the reality is, through most of history, you even think in the Old Testament, to see the face of God was to die. You could not see God's face. Rather, you could maybe see the backside of him, but he's like, you are not going to see my face because it is so holy you will die. And then here, Paul says, there's coming a day when the perfect comes when you get to see your creator God face to face, eye to eye, right before you. You'll no longer need to be shielded or veiled from him. We get to experience him in all his glory. Not only are we told that here, but even in the last chapter of Revelation, it says they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. That's what we get to look forward to. We will love and be loved in perfect communion. And this sounds daunting to love this way. Yet the beauty is we've had one come before us that has shown us the way, that has shown us this love is possible. This isn't just a love theorized. This is a love actualized. We have received this kind of love. And we can give this kind of love. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of the love of God. That it is freely given. And the cross is the greatest example of that love that's been bestowed upon us. In Romans it says, But God showed his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, he went to the cross because he loved us. It wasn't because we deserved it. It wasn't because of anything we had done. But it was simply because he loved us and he loved his father. And he said, I love you to the point of death. You see, this love is truly a gift. A gift that we get to receive and by in part use. 
You see, when love is freely given, it doesn't depend on receiving something in, de- in return. Love doesn't depend on whether we're attractive to God. Because God loves us freely. God loves us eternally. His love is not fading. It's permanent. We have been fully known by God and loved by God. Christ's love for us is so profound and amazing. Think about it. We really enjoy doing things for people that we love, and so we'll go out of our way to benefit them. Yet if that that person hurts me, I'm probably apt to take at least a little step back to maybe reevaluate that relationship or to maybe not act quite like I had before. And if that pattern continues and I feel like I continually get hurt or burned by that person that I love, my relationship is to continue to get hurt more and more and more, and I'll slowly distance myself and push, push myself away often or push them away. Very rarely, if ever, in those moments do I sit down and say, hey, I'm going to write a note to you about how much I love you and how much I care about you. Yet in a sense, that's what Christ does every single day. As he says, I love you. I care about you. As we push him, as we punch him, as we insult him day in and day out through the lives we live. Yet he says, I love you. I'm going to keep holding on because I'm going to freely give my love and I'm not going to let go because my love will never fail. My love will never fade. You see, with Christ, this agape love actually creates value rather than responds to it. He's saying, I'm loving you and I'm giving you value. I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you worth. And that value, that purpose, that worth is never going to fade because my love for you is never going to fade. What Christian love is, it is, is it motivates us on prior experiences of the love of Christ. It's not a reciprocal return, but rather as, John's, as Jesus says in John, we love because he first loved us. And the beauty is when Christ left, he actually said it's important that I go that you may receive the helper, that you may receive the spirit. And so the beauty of the gospel is when Christ died and was resurrected, he left, and in return, we got the spirit of God to reside within us. And what is the first fruit of the spirit? It's love. Through the spirit, we have the ability to love as Christ has loved us. We have the very love of God residing within us. It's the Spirit's empowerment that allows us to love as Christ loved. So as we kind of come to a close, I've got three statements for us to reflect on, to think about this day and this week. Number one, there is no litmus test for who to love. You see, this passage isn't just for couples. And I know this passage is very often read at weddings, and so I think we so often associate it. This is is a marriage passage, or this is for, you know, married couples. Yet the reality is Paul is writing to the whole church. He's writing to Corinth. 
This kind of love is not designated to a special person. Rather, if God loves them, we are called to love them as well. Christians are to respect and care for those who may not really seem attractive or like us. They might be from a different culture, different gender, different political views, race, concerns, or interests. But that shouldn't be the mode in which we choose, are they worth loving or not? The call to love is not a selective love. So does my life reflect that truth? We need to reflect on those in our life that we say we love. Do they look any different than you? Or are they pretty much the same? If everyone looks just like me, I have to ask the question, am I loving them, or in some sense, am I loving myself through them? We need to do an inventory of who we love. Do we love people that have different political beliefs than us? Do we love people that have a different view on sexuality and gender than I do? Do we love people that have different views on religion or spirituality? Do I love people that have just opposite opinions or opposite interests of my own? Or I think in a college town, it's easy. do I love people that are 10 years older than me or 10 years younger than you? Do I bridge that gap and say, there's, there's, no, there's no age requirement on who I love? You see, there's no litmus test for who to love. And number two, love is other-focused. Love is other-focused. So what is your motivation for love? Why do you love others? Is it others-seeking? Or is it self-seeking? You see, the love that Paul calls us to, and by and large God calls us to, is all about the other. All about the other. Love actually decenters the self. It pulls us out of the center of the paradigm and, and looks to see how can I bless others. The question is, what would it look like this week to love for the sake of others? To go out of my way to love somebody, not for my own accord, but simply for theirs. And then lastly, number three, our future is set, so let's live like it. One of the things I love about this chapter is it pushes us to look to the future and to see just a glimpse of what the end looks like. And we see that in the end, we get to see God face to face. We have already been known by God fully, and then in the end, we get to know God fully. But the reality is, if, if we have been known by God fully, then that should impact the here and now. That should impact how I love, to the depths of my love, who I love. Because if I know that the creator of the universe loves me, will never stop loving me, will love me into eternity, then I'm much more willing to freely give out my love now with 
the potential of being let down, with the potential of being hurt, with the potential of being abused. But I know that this love that I have from God is far greater than any hurt I can experience now. Because God's love continues on into the eschaton, and we get to do that same reality. We get to play a role in loving people into the kingdom of God. Have that focus on the future, the glimpse of what life will be like when we get to see God face to face. That will radically change the way we live in the here and now. Because God's love never fails. God's love never ends. May we step into that never-failing, never-ending love today. Let's pray. Lord God, Lord, I thank you that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, that you showed us what love looked like while you lived your life on earth. Lord, that you brought value to those that seemed worthless. Lord, you bring value to us. And God, I pray that we will be men and women that respond to your love with love ourselves. Lord, that we love others. That we go out of our way, God, to show what true love looks like. And God, I pray that we, we leave today reflecting on these truths. That you challenge us, Lord, to think through, what is the motivation for my love? Who am I loving? And how can I respond in light of those things? In your name, amen.